Thank you, Dan, for reading our scripture tonight. Isaiah did a great job leading our singing. And I really, really appreciate Isaiah, his spiritual growth. I know that, I know you're proud of him just as much as we are proud of him. Dan was telling me on the front row just a minute ago that he is on deck, ready to lead singing as well. And he told me that Billy and I probably ought to be thinking about our retirement. <laughs> so I asked him, how long do you give us? He said, I give you five years. So, time is short, <laughs> but we are proud of our young folks, very, very proud of them. And I have said over and over again that we have a tremendous group of young people, both young men and young ladies, and we're proud of each and every one of them. And we look forward to hearing many, many great things from them as they grow older, and I know, that, I know that they will be not just good citizens in this country, but they will be great citizens in the kingdom of God. And we're proud of them. And I look forward to the day when some of our young men are preaching and teaching. And there'll come a time when they will serve as elders and deacons and song leaders. And our young ladies, they will rise up to the task before them. And they'll be married to men who serve as elders and deacons and preachers and song leaders. And they'll be faithful teachers to our young folks. They'll teach our, our ladies and they will serve and contribute in so many ways. I've said on a number of occasions, I believe Olive Branch to be a special place and my mind hasn't changed. I believe this is a special place. And I appreciate the elders of this congregation nurturing the spiritual growth of our young people. We've been having a class on Monday nights, a class on leadership, and Billy said that Isaiah and others who will be leading our singing, that this is something that has grown out of that class. And so we're grateful for all of the good that's being done here. It's my prayer that much more good will be accomplished in the years to come. I want to invite you tonight to look with me at Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In Exodus, of course, the book begins with the children of Israel in Egypt in bondage. And the Bible tells us that there arose a new king in Egypt that knew not Joseph. There was a king that did not know the God of Joseph. God had said many years earlier to Abraham the father of the Hebrew nation, that his people would sojourn in a strange land for 430 years. And then 
God would bring them out. They would enjoy redemption from their slavery. And so in the following chapters, God provides us with a narrative of these events, beginning with the calling of Moses, who would ultimately become the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel. When we come to chapter 6, God reminds Moses or reassures Moses of his plans for Israel. Sometimes we need to be reminded. Sometimes we need reassurance. The task before Moses and Aaron was monumental. And yet God, through these men, would utilize them in great ways. The Egyptians would be plundered. Israel would be victorious. And so I want you to look with me for just a minute or two as God reminds Moses or reassures him of that which he is going to do on behalf of his people. First of all, I want to suggest to you that God said he would provide freedom for Israel. If you drop down and look at verse 6, God said, I will rescue you from their bondage. They were enslaved in Egypt and God was going to bring them out and that would be a great thing now in looking at chapter 6, there are some things that we ought to consider with regard to their enslavement in Egypt. I want to begin by talking about the tremendous load that was weighing upon the hearts of Israel in the long ago. Look with me if you would. At verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Look at verse 4 if you would. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers, and I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. When I think about the tremendous load weighing upon the hearts and lives of ancient Israel, two words come to mind. The first, their burdens. The second, their bondage. Listen again to what God said in verse 5. I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel. Did you know that God is mindful of the plight of his people? If you go back and look at chapter 3 when God called 
Moses. The text says in verse 7 that the Lord made this statement. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. God is omniscient. He knows all and he sees all. And we talk about the burdens and the bondage that God's people experience today and people in general. God's mindful of that. Did you know that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without our Heavenly Father knowing it? If something as insignificant as a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without Almighty God taking note of that, then surely he's mindful of our plight here on planet Earth. In verse 8, the Bible says, I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God was mindful of the great load, the tremendous load weighing upon his people. I would remind you tonight that you might be experiencing the burdens of life, the difficulties of life, but you're not alone. God is mindful of where you are in this life. Now, there's a second thing I want you to consider along these lines. Not only was ancient Israel under a tremendous load, but God said, I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to bring you out of this land. Listen, if you would, to verse 6 of chapter 6. God said, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Again, two key words. The first is the term rescue. The second is the word redeem. Now we talk about the Old Testament and how the Old Testament was written for our learning and there are types and shadows in the Old Testament. Somewhat of a prelude of the New Testament. When you look at the New Testament and the coming of the Messiah, Jesus came to do what? Number one, to rescue people from sin and unrighteousness. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Not only did Jesus come to rescue us, but he came with the intent of redeeming us by his blood. And that's exactly what he did. Over in chapter 12, we read about the institution of the Passover and the lamb that would be slain and the blood that would be applied. Those who followed those instructions, 
their firstborn lived. Those who did not, their firstborn died. The Bible says that Christ is our Passover lamb. And it says he was sacrificed for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. The Bible talks about the redemptive work of Jesus, the Son of God. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In him or in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. No wonder Paul would say in verse 6, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. And so to know that God would rescue and redeem his people. There's a second thing I want you to see in our study. Not only would God provide freedom for Israel, but God said that he would provide fellowship for Israel. First, I want to talk about for just a moment or two the personal relationship that Israel would enjoy with Jehovah God. Now, we talk about Egypt. And many of the cities that are spoken of in the Old Testament, those ancient cities, they were filled with idolatry. And yet the God that we're talking about is not a pagan deity, but rather the God of heaven, the creator of the universe. And so these people would enjoy a relationship with the Lord. And so in verse 7, here's what he said. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is saying to these people, look, you're going to be my people. Over in chapter 19, God would remind Moses what he did on behalf of ancient Israel. And he said, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, he said, you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. God was saying, you're going to be my special people. And somebody asked the question, why did God choose Israel? Well, the short answer would be because he's God. The second answer would be God needed a nation. He needed a people to bring the Messiah into the world. And so that nation was Israel. Now we talk about the personal relationship that they enjoyed with God. Did you know that those of us who belong to the Lord, that we too have a personal relationship with Almighty God? John writes in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. To know that God is our heavenly Father, the creator of the universe. That he is our God. Personally speaking, he is my God. He is your God. But he is our Father. And God was saying to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now you talk about a unique relationship enjoyed by a nation of people. To know that God lavished his love and care upon ancient Israel. 
And that's exactly what he's done today. He has lavished upon the human family his grace, mercy, and love. You see, God cares about the human family. So much so that he sent Jesus into the world so that we might enjoy that relationship with him. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Did you know that when you obey the gospel, that your relationship to the world changes? You're no longer enslaved to sin and unrighteousness. You're no longer under the bondage that Jesus talks about in John chapter 8. The taskmaster, the ruler, or the one who reigns in the lives of those who are in the world, the devil. He's identified in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, as the God of this world. Paul said when we obey the gospel, turning our hearts and lives to him through repentance, confessing his name before others, when we are immersed in that watery grave of baptism, we then contact the blood that was shed at Calvary, thereby making it possible for us to enjoy an intimate relationship with the Lord. And so we are placed in his kingdom according to Colossians chapter 1. We're delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. And he said it's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1 verse 14. And so it's a very personal relationship that we have with the Lord. It might be the case that one of the reasons some people are not what they ought to be in the church is because they haven't developed and nurtured that personal relationship with the Lord. How can I deepen my relationship to God? Well, I've got to spend time with him, don't I? I spend time with God by reading and studying and meditating on his word, looking deeply into the truths of Almighty God, the psalmist of old meditated on the law of Jehovah and the Bible says he meditated day and night in Psalm 1 at verse 2. I deepen my relationship to God through prayer, spending time in prayer to Almighty God, in engaging in those acts. It enables me to draw closer to God. You know, James said if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. There are some people today, there are some people in the world, some people in the church, sadly, that have been married for years, but they have drifted apart. The reason is because they haven't nurtured and worked on a daily basis to strengthen that relationship to become more intimate with one another, to grow closer together. And by the way, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, that if we're a Christian, we are married to Christ. And so we want to draw closer to the Lord. And so I think about ancient Israel and the personal relationship that they would enjoy with the Lord. But then there is a second thing that comes to mind. And that is Israel would see 
and enjoy the great power of Almighty God. Have you ever thought about the power of God? How powerful is God? We talk about people today that have enormous strength. We talk about nuclear weapons and the potential destruction that can come as a result of the engagement of those weapons of war and destruction. But God is all-powerful. And ancient Israel, they were going to enjoy the power of God in their lives. It would be evidenced in certain ways. Let me just cite for you a couple of ways. When I think about the power of Almighty God, you have to understand that Israel is serving Egypt. There's a Pharaoh, there's a king in Egypt. He doesn't know the God of Joseph. He has made life bitter, extremely difficult for the children of Israel. And God is saying, look, I am going to lead you out of bondage. Listen again to what he said in verse 6. I am the Lord. And he said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Numerous plagues would be the result of the stubborn and hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. Each of those plagues was directed at one of the pagan gods the Egyptians served. And God was saying, I will bring you out. Ancient Israel would see that firsthand. In chapter 19, God said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now you want to talk about power? When God says he will do something on behalf of his people, you can take it to the bank. He'll do it. And then I think about not just, not just his power, and we, we talk about the byproducts of his power. But I, I think about the tremendous provisions, the protection that Israel enjoyed. Over in chapter 13, God will lead the children of Israel by a pillar of cloud. pillar of light. They've come out of bondage and God is leading them every step of the way. Over in chapter 16, somewhat incredulous, but Israel begins to murmur against God because in their minds, God has brought them out of Egypt so that they might die from hunger or starvation. And God said, I will rain bread from heaven upon you. 
And God fed those people with manna. Fed them with bread. And you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus had a lengthy discourse over the subject of the bread of life. And they referenced the bread that Moses gave them from heaven. And Jesus said, look, Moses didn't give you that bread. God did. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So here is God. He promises to bring them out of bondage. He does that. And then he cares for them. Now what about us today? Do we not serve the same God? Is God not concerned about me? Does he care about me? Is he interested in my welfare? Will God provide for me? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 6? When Jesus talked about the providential care of God on behalf of his people, he asked them in that context, why do you worry? What were they worrying about? Food? Shelter? Clothing? So Jesus said three times, do not worry. God will provide. God will be with us just as he was with ancient Israel in the long ago. There's a third thing I want you to see in our study. It's found in verse 8. And that is God would provide a future for Israel. I think about their freedom, their fellowship, and their future. Israel had a great future before them. I want to begin by spending a minute and talking about the promise that was made to Israel that they might dwell in the land of Canaan. Listen, if you would, at what is recorded in verse 8. God said, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. God made a promise to his people. That promise was, I will bring you into a land that flows with milk and honey. Go back again and look with me for just a moment at chapter 3. Listen to what God said. I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, or out of the hand of the Egyptians, verse 8, to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. God made a promise to Abraham. We can trace that promise all the way back to chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. God instructing Abraham to leave his homeland and to leave his family. 
And God said, I want you to come to a land that I will show you. The Hebrew writer speaks of the tremendous faith of Abraham. The Bible says, by faith, Abraham did what? He obeyed and went out not knowing where he was going. You talk about absolute faith in God. So God made a promise to Abraham in chapter 15. He talks about this promised land that Israel would receive. And it's in that context that he talks about how his people would dwell in the land of Egypt for 430 years and then they would come out. God is now saying to Moses, look, what I promised, what I promised to my people hundreds of years ago, he said, I'm ready to fulfill it. Now we talk about our relationship to the Lord today and the fact that we are benefactors of his great blessings. Did you know that we have the promise today of heavenly Canaan? Again, we talk about types and shadows. Canaan signified a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel wanted that land. And by the way, they received that land. Joshua tells us that they possessed all the land that God had promised to give them. Joshua said not one word of Almighty God failed. They possessed that land. They were the recipients of what God had promised. Now we talk about heavenly Canaan. Here's what Jesus said before he left to go back to heaven. He had been talking to the apostles about his impending departure. He would die. And so Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Peter talks about the Christian inheritance that we have. In 1 Peter chapter 1, on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Peter said, we have an inheritance. And he said, it is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It fades not away. And he said, it is reserved in heaven. Listen to him, for you. Every child of God has the promise of eternal life. Now, I would grant that we have to live in compliance with the will of God. You remember in Numbers chapter 14, Israel, when the spies came back, the people began to murmur. And the reason was they did not believe the report that was given by Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb had gone out and surveyed the land. And they said, look, it is, it's truly a land flowing with milk and honey. We're able to go in and take possession of it. But 10 of those spies were not so confident. 
And so the people begin looking for somebody to lead them back to Egypt. Can you imagine that? The very people that God had led forth out of Egyptian bondage, the people that he had nurtured and cared for and protected every step of the way, now they're ready to go back. So God said, look, he said, I will disinherit them. Some of those people did not get to go to Canaan, did they? They forfeited that right because of their lack of faith. We today have the promise of heavenly Canaan. And we look forward to being in a land where there's no more death, nor crying, nor pain or sorrow. For as John said in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, these former things have passed away. What a great land. But then there's a second thing I want you to see. We talk about the promise that was made concerning the land of Canaan, dwelling in the land of Canaan. But preparation had to be made in order for the people of God to dwell in that land. In Joshua chapter 1, God calls upon his servant to assume the role of leadership on behalf of Israel. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. And God reiterated to Joshua that land promise, that he was going to give them that land, and it was Joshua's task to lead them into the promised land. And so in about verse 13, Joshua commands the captains to inform the people to prepare for themselves provisions because he said in three days we're going to cross the Jordan. All Joshua was saying is, look, we're about to go into Canaan. You better make preparation. You need to get ready to go. If we want to dwell in heavenly Canaan, we like ancient Israel of old, we must make preparation. We've got to make preparation so that one day we can be together in heaven. Think about some two million people crossing the Jordan. I think about all those people going into the land of Canaan and God's caring for them. God wants you in heaven. In order for you to be in heaven, though, you've got to make preparation. You've got to make sure that your life is what it ought to be. The Bible in a very explicit way, tells us how we can make preparation to be in heaven one day. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 8. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What Jesus was saying is, unless you come to believe that I am God's divine son. You remember Peter? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We have to have that kind of conviction. And then we have to get out of the sinning business. We've got to repent. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, to repent. And then 
the privilege is ours to confess the name of Jesus before others. To acknowledge that we believe that he is God's only son. And then we are immersed in a watery grave of baptism. We're immersed so that we can contact the blood of Christ. Because you see, the blood of Christ is what washes away our sins. Christ shed his blood on Calvary in death, John 19, 34. And so Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know you not that all we who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead, according to the, to the glory of the Father, even so we also might walk in newness of life. And so we can come up out of that water, new people. As Paul said, a new creation. Now Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. When we obey the gospel, God then puts us in the church of the kingdom. The Bible promises us that if we're faithful till death, he will bestow on us the crown of life. When you look at Exodus chapter 6 and you think about what God planned to do for Israel, it was a great thing. But I want you to think about this in closing. God has made plans. God is making plans. for eternity. That is, he is preparing for us an eternal abiding place. God wants us to be with him in heaven one day. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. There's no reason whatsoever any of us should be lost. Because God wants us with him. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we encourage you to come to Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful, if you're not what you ought to be, again, we encourage you to come to Christ. James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. Could we pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing?